0: current born wave-flung, tugged hugely by the whole might of ocean, the jellyfish drifts in the tidal abyss. The light shines through it, and the dark enters it. Born, flung, tugged from anywhere to anywhere, for in the deep sea there is no compass but nearer and farther, higher and lower. The jellyfish hangs and sways, pulses, move slight and quick within it, as the vast diurnal pulses beat in the moon-driven sea. Hanging, swaying, pulsing, the most vulnerable and insubstantial creature. It has for its defense the violence and power of the whole ocean, to which it has entrusted its being, its going, and its will. But here rise the stubborn continents, the shelves of gravel, and the cliffs of rock break from water baldly into air, that dry, terrible outer space of radiance and instability, where there is no support for life. And now, now the currents mislead and the waves betray, breaking their endless circle, to leap up in loud foam against rock and air, breaking. What will the creature, made all of sea drift, do on the dry sand of daylight? What will the mind do each morning, waking? That is from Ursula K. Le Guin's The Lathe of Heaven. It's one of my favorite books. I read it almost every year. And I open today's podcast with that quote to introduce to you some of the themes that I will be exploring in this episode with Gordon White. So Gordon is the host of the Rune Soup podcast. He is the author of a number of great books, Chaos Protocols, Starships, and Pieces of Eight, which I believe has come out more recently. Gordon has some of my favorite people on his show, uh, most recently including Gary Lockman, who is also going to be featured in my upcoming class in the Gene Gepser class, for those of you who are tuning into that. And I had this inkling to invite Gordon on last year. And funny enough, it was last year where we recorded this session. It was in December. It's been a number of months, but it's also been one heck of a journey to get to where we are right now. So much has changed and so much has happened. But as I hope you will see in this episode, the topics that we go over are just as relevant for pre-COVID as they are post-COVID. The theme of this episode that is emergent in our conversation together circles around the imagination of imminent future abilities, as Franco Bifo Berardi might put it of Taoist heroes for post-capitalist futures. But most of all, and this is Gordon's phrase, myths for human flourishing, or myths for flourishing. And that's what I decided on the title for this episode, Entangled Myths for Planetary Flourishing. And what does this mean? Well, we look at many different stories from Ursula K. Le Guin to her Earthsea trilogy, some of her science fiction, which could be called Taoist science fiction, to films like cloud atlas to works of fiction themselves as revolutionary acts acts in which we imagine different ways of living and being in the world different ways to relate to our own identity and our own process of self-transformation which may not need to be the classical hero's journey gordon talks about non-tyrannical ways of being in the world of getting out of our own way how to live artistically, and that doesn't mean being an artist per se, but to live artistically, as he says, and you'll hear in the recording, to live artistically is to delight in making your evening meal. How do we live more this way? I think a lot of us are learning that these days. We're taking up gardening and cooking, uh, watching things grow, becoming more present out of this disruption of global capitalism. Some of us are fortunate enough to pause, become present, and perhaps for the first time, learning to live artistically in the present. We, we cover a lot of ground here, and I really appreciated the way in which Gordon is able to describe in an erudite fashion, many different ideas, many different thinkers, different philosophies, weaving them together in very enchanting vision of the possible, I I was really struck by the whole idea of an alternative hero's journey. A hero's journey where we learn to be, and this is what he recommended that I do, and I still have yet to read the Earthsea uh, books, Gordon, but I promise you they are on my list for 2020, coming up very soon, but how to be a pacifist in a living universe, right? How to take that angle on the hero's journey And I mentioned earlier, Taoist Heroes for Post-Capitalist Futures. That was one of the potential titles for this episode. But it's in these little acts of imagining, of storytelling, of working creatively in the present as artists of our own lives that we might capture or reclaim potentially revolutionary acts. And remember what I'm saying here, that the Taoist approach to this, the, the pacifist approach to this that Gordon talks about, it is not a a revolution of chopping off of heads and going to war. Let's hope we don't have to get to that. Rather, the revolution begins in a much smaller way. We talk about the Lord of the Rings and J.R.R. R. Tolkien as another theme here, another example of a, a planetary myth. But from Becca Tarnas's book journey to the imaginal realm, we get the very clear impression that one of the ways forward in difficult times is not to create some grand revolutionary scheme, but to be the little guy planting gardens and doing the best they can in a world and with a task that seems overwhelming and, and too big for them. And it will always be too big for us, but we can do what we can And so there's this theme here that I thought of reading to you from one of my other favorite little books, uh, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, from David Graeber. I think it pertains very well with the theme of this episode. A revolution on a world scale will take a very long time, but it is also possible to recognize that it is already starting to happen. The easiest way to get our minds around it is to stop thinking about revolution as a thing, the revolution, the great cataclysmic break and instead ask, what is revolutionary action? We could then suggest, revolutionary action is any collective action which rejects and therefore confronts some form of power or domination and in doing so, reconstitutes social relations, even within the collectivity, in that light. Revolutionary action does not necessarily have to aim to topple governments, attempts to create autonomous communities in the face of power, would, for instance, be almost by definition revolutionary acts. And history shows us that continual accumulation of such acts can change almost everything. So what do we do? How do we live this sort of revolutionary way? Well, we talk about it in this episode. And I think right now, with everything breaking up, breaking in, things resetting and being disrupted, Questions and reversals and an of themes that used to be privy to the consciousness culture, talking about regenerative earth practices and coming down to earth and uh, working with the land and decentralization, etc., etc. These these themes are suddenly finding their way into a more mainstream discourse. Now, whether or not that translates into substantive action at this moment, I don't know. But perhaps we can take from the stories that Gordon and I explore this idea that we can begin with, as it were, a sociology of micro utopias. The little acts, the little ways of breathing and being and creating and living artistically, the little ways of being in the world in a, that pacifist way, in that nonviolent way, might be the start, at the very least, of what we can do right now. And as Graeber says, a little bit later in the book, The moment we stop insisting on viewing all forms of action only by their function, and reproducing larger, total forms of inequality of power, we will also be able to see that anarchist social relations and non-alienated forms of action are all around us. And this is critical, because it already shows that anarchism is, already, and has always been, one of the main bases for human interaction. We self-organize and engage in mutual aid all the time. We always have. We're learning how to become present and to create in the present and to imagine a different world. Stories like the ones that we will explore in this episode help to teach us how to live and to be in the world. And they also show us how we might individuate in the world as well. We've gone through this before and perhaps in a very new, in a very ancient way, as maybe Charles Eisenstein would phrase it. We should revisit these themes once again. So enjoy this episode. Enjoy Gordon. He was a pleasure to speak with. I hope to have him on the podcast again. As a quick reminder, you are welcome to join the Patreon channel for Mutations podcast, where I have been posting fairly regularly these days with new episodes, new discussions. We've been hosting a regular quarantine movie series where we've been watching either films or documentaries. We've watched Stalker and Annihilation so far. We will be watching Nora Bateson's documentary An Ecology of Mind about her father, Gregory Bateson. So definitely come in and watch that with us and discuss it with us. And next month, we're going to be hosting the Phenomenon of Man book club. We're going to be reading Tehard Chardin's The Phenomenon of Man, writing off the coattails of Gene Gepser. We're just wrapping up the last of the lecture series and uh, live Sunday classes, uh, reading through the ever present origin, discussing integral philosophy, and exploring practices of becoming present in exploring our own consciousness. Those have been fantastic sessions. I've had a wonderful time with a great group of students, and a number of them are going to be hopping over to Patreon to participate in the book club this summer. There's a lot of other things coming down the pipe, including uh, another episode with Andrew Sweeney, which is another archive pre-COVID tape uh, like this one. I'm calling these the pre-COVID tapes. Andrew Sweeney is a writer and a thinker who is in our mutual circles exploring uh, themes like Gene Gepser and meta-modernity, and where we're headed next in terms of all of these cultural transformations. So we had a good conversation that I am looking forward to sharing with you. And Becca Tarnas and Mark Vernon episode, The Inklings and the Evolution of Consciousness, featuring Gene Gepser Uh, that episode has been recorded and posted for patrons so if you are interested in that one please tune in one more thing my patreon has a discord channel so when you join you get an invite Uh, you can get an invite without joining patreon but there are patron only sections where i will be sharing writing and early podcasts and uh, polls and kind of questions about what movies to explore next, et cetera. So definitely check that out. I will try to leave a link to Discord in the in the session notes, but uh, as I have learned, uh, Discord's links tend to expire very quickly, but I'll see what I can do. And Discord is where we've been hosting our watch party sessions for the movies. We'll play the movie on our own uh, TVs or, or laptops and chat away throughout the session. It's been really fun. At any rate, please enjoy my conversation with Gordon White of RuneSoup Podcast. Once again, fantastic conversation. I was so inspired by the end of this, and I hope you are too. And I think tonight I am actually just going to pick up Earthsea and begin my own wizard's journey. Without further ado, enjoy the podcast. So, Gordon, welcome to Mutations. Thank you very Uh, much. I don't have uh, an opening question for you in terms of, uh, I love your opening question, were you a weird kid? Uh, And I've been thinking about what to ask you first. A good place to start might be to kind of just jump in. There's a lot of context between us, Mm -hmm. just in terms of uh, your conversations, as we were just mentioning with Becca, and your interest in a lot of overlapping subjects like science fiction, imagination, uh, solar punk. Uh, I find a lot of interesting kind of four ways with your work in terms of imagining the future with magic, uh, with consciousness studies and lots of other things like that. So the question would probably be, if there is something in here, um, what are you working on right now?
1: Yeah, loads. I mean, there, there always is. It's sort of funny. I managed to write my first two books. Whilst working full time at a very senior um, sort of like global director level media job, um, which was which obviously kept me very busy. And now that I kind of do this full time, I somehow have less time to do things like write books. So, yeah, there's a couple of them. 2020 will have uh, hopefully a 90% sure two books will be out one fiction, one non-fiction. And there will also be a um, an extended re-release of Pieces of Eight in in print for our members only. So in terms of those kind of like text-based uh, projects, there's always someone to go. It's just been, um, it turns out doing this and, and setting up the permaculture farm and whatever are all, uh, you know, a lot of work. So uh, on each quarter, I have something that the members will be working on. So the next quarterly course is on wealth magic. And realistically, the courses take the same amount of work and and research and and effort as writing a book. So in this weird sense, it's been a year, and a couple of years since I wrote a book, but in that time, I've done sort of like six book projects. (laughs) So 2020, one of my goals, it's a very Capricorn season goal, is to precisely divvy up the amount of time so that I can get all of those things done. But yeah, there's always projects, Uh, there's always projects on the go, and they're all they're all it's different projects in the same field or vineyard if you will
0: yeah farming and writing permaculture yeah. farming and writing that those, yeah. those work well together um yeah so so maybe we can kind of go into that a little bit how how is it how long you've been on the the permaculture farm just a year or so two
1: in january it will be two years but mm-hmm. in that time so i was calculating it this year with um, spending uh, a month in South America on like an ayahuasca dieta and all the other stuff. And there's kind of trip I did through the U.S. um, speaking the Guggenheim and so on. I've actually spent more than three months of the year, which is a quarter of the year off the farm. So I've been down, this has been my legal address for two years come January, but there's been chunks of time, too much time where, uh, Uh, I haven't actually been here. And it looks like to some extent something similar will happen next year. It's kind of interesting. It's a cool temperate climate. So there is in fact conveniently big chunks of the year where I can't do anything. There's infrastructure projects, like we could build stuff like chicken tractors and so on. But in the dead of winter, which conveniently is the Northern hemisphere summer, obviously, uh, it doesn't really matter if I'm here or not. So uh, that's, that's kind of when I do my adventuring to make sure that I'm, you know, I'm back for the busy time, which is now, obviously, it's late spring, early summer. And uh, in Southern Tasmania, with the amount of rain we had in spring, you know, the the old saying, a boring is watching the grass grow. It's not boring down here. It's like watching a motorsport because it just goes <laughs> crazy.
0: Yeah, I, I just missed you actually in the, I think you're in Portland. Yeah. And uh, I, had, I had just flown up, I think a Maybe a couple of days after that event. So I just missed you. I know you met my colleague Jen Zart there. Absolutely,
1: your UFO yeah, yeah. talk. Uh, that,
0: yeah. that
1: sounds like that was an interesting, interesting conversation. That was fun. That was kind of. Uh, Mitch Horowitz said that that was a sort of that was a moment in in the occult revival because the Guggenheim certainly hasn't had, you know, a chaos magician not just on stage but selling out the uh the actual theater so there were standby tickets which is super fun i can say at my first ever new york show we sold out hey, i didn't have yes, anything to do yes. with it necessarily but it was it's just it's a thing that happens in in the moment and and that was interesting that was a really good discussion to have you know a, a theologian like dana welsh pasulka and and a chaos magician slash farmer. i also think i'm the only tasmanian to have done something okay like yeah good. add course, that, like add a, that to the do list win, right yeah yeah, yeah.
0: I've seen your podcast grow over the years, and I think you really represent it. what you're saying is this sort of rising crest of interest in the occult. In a lot of a lot of the folks that you have on your show, like that, yes, they could be very kind of particular with particular magical traditions, but in general, I've just noticed because I used to work um, with Reality as as a copy okay. editor and blogger. And since like 2012, 2011, I've, I've seen just an explosion of interest in consciousness studies, occult practices, uh, magical tradition revivals. And yeah, maybe there, maybe that was a watershed moment. Do you, do you sense that there's sort of more of a more of an interest in this now? Maybe more so than we've seen since like the 1960s or 1970s?
1: Yeah, maybe not that far back, but yes. Um, so Mitch Horowitz, who is my favorite, I guess, contemporary occult historian. There's not a long list, to be fair. There aren't too many people. It, it would be a conference of one, realistically, or maybe five if Mitch had one, right? Yeah. But... Uh, he says, and I think he's right. There's something fundamentally different about this occult revival. The the quote unquote Western world, however frustrating that term is, right, does this every couple of decades, and has for the last few centuries. And and historically, it's done things like it's been caught up in um, the colonial fascinations with with India and Africa and so on. And arguably, the same thing in the post war period with with the 60s and, and the hippies and kind of discovering South Asia and and so on. Right, uh, and To some extent that's happening again now in that it's, it's implicated in our politics so not necessarily in a causative way but in a way that is very difficult to extract. Uh, And fortunately I think this current revivals political implications are benign is the wrong word, are potentially more useful or may lead in the medium term to flourishing. And I think that's kind of what Mitch is picking up on. If you look at the the undercurrents of this current occult revival, they're sort of uh, embedded in um, universal suffrage. So whether that's um, gender rights, whether that's environmentalism, and so on, in a way that it kind of hasn't before. It was there in a way, and this is admirable, in in the anti-war movement with the hippies, but it was a bit more wishy-washy. Um, as was the style at the time this is at the moment there is a genuine lean forward interest in participating in making a living universe better as in for everyone not better in a moralistic sense and i think that's good i think uh, i don't think it backslides for a while right and it's a question of which model you bring and i'm a big fan of cycle models be they astrology or whatever it's a question of which model you bring to, to interpret what's going on around you. And for this stuff in particular, my preference is Charles Fort's understanding of dominance. And that's and a dominant with a T if people haven't heard of it, but he essentially did that very Western thing of, of um, sequencing human civilization. And um, we were moving out of this, a dominant is when is a, is a condition where certain things are true and we're moving out of effectively the dominant of science where the, technocratic uh, materialist and materialising truths are what keep things as well unreal. And we're moving into what he called dominant of white illusions or the dominant of witchcraft. And it's different to um, Kuhn and Structure of Scientific Revolution because um, that was sort of Cold War propaganda for one, but also Forts is better and older uh, because what he said isn't that we expand in ever-increasing correctness which is sort of what Kuhn is talking about with paradigm shifts, right? He's like, okay, well, we found quantum physics, so we paradigm shifted to getting better at describing the universe. What Ford has is that things that are true literally change. So there is an evolution of of what is true in the universe. And it just seems to me, and it's in the air, even with people who are stalwart defenders of the outgoing dominant, like my father's a psychiatrist, right? even he can feel it, even he's interested in, in spiritualism and, and, ancestor work and all the rest of it. So there is something this time that makes it different to it being, which it also is a cultural fad. So there is an element of the occult revival that is, you know, the pads or chemical perms, uh, undoubtedly that is the case, but that is almost like a side effect of what's actually going on in a kind of Western unconscious sense.
0: This is something that comes up quite a bit in, in your podcasts. Uh, I was listening to one recently. I forget which episode it was. You've mentioned this more than once, but it's this idea that the most interesting thing going on in philosophy is actually happening in anthropology.
1: Hands and it's,
0: it, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's anthropology's openness, I think to, in a sense, decolonize, but we don't, by decolonize, you know, I'm understanding this is not just decolonize as in going against colonialism and liberating you know social justice etc but in terms of our own consciousness in terms of the kind of dominant ontologies that the west uh, exports to everybody else suddenly you know animism indigenous practices indigenous worldviews magical traditions are challenging or subverting colonialism (laughs) or western empiricism at an ontological level it's sort of It's underneath the skin. It's coming from the inside out. Yeah, so I really appreciate that. And I didn't really kind of, I didn't really see Fort in that way. I haven't read him very deeply.
1: He he was a really, really fascinating guy, right? Yeah. And um, Dr. Jack Hunter wrote a kind of interesting book on one of his first books. um, And he's been interested in Fort for a long time in that sense, which is he, Fort kind of was a philosopher in his own way, but in a way that I, like, this is, I don't mean it in a, arrogant sense in a way that i would um i find a lot of resonance with on, on a personality basis he was the son of a shopkeeper who um uh, and he was stacking cans one day in his father's shop in new york um i think it was in new york and he suddenly realized it was sort of like cans one of them had peaches and the other one had like mints or something and he kind of he took all the labels off and started stacking them and for him that was a that was an ontological moment which is like well what is this and is this in the can or is it not and so he'd always been kind of like fascinated at the at the surface and the interior of reality and and so he spent years and years and years of his life collecting anomalous newspaper reports from around the world and he did that in New York public library he did that in London he did that in places where you have these huge databases of strange stuff that have happened um in you know in the 1890s it would it rained giant cubes of ice in um, bangalore i think it was and all these stories they're like well that doesn't make any sense and you add them all together and it was these damned facts is what he called them that's named jack's book that are the thing that eventually washes over the um the resistance from the dominant of science like there are there are too many true things for the existing rules to describe and that's actually what floods it and and changes the next thing because science did that and rightly so science did that a few centuries ago uh f- for the previous dominant to that which of course was religion right and in particular that sort of revealed religion and too many things in the enlightenment swamped the ecclesiastical view of reality so that it couldn't hold and we're there with specifically science in a materialist and controlling sense we're not there in the sense of science as a method of inquiry or an epistemology where there is a um what i think the dominant of wider inclusions will do is actually save science i think it will free it from being a totalizing metaphysics which it was never meant to be and bringing it back down to what it is tremendously valuable as which is an epistemology right and that's why it's called the dominant of wider inclusions because everything from the previous dominance are still in play there's just more there's more now there's mm. now there's spirits now there's ufos now there's um intelligence of plants now there's telepathy all these things which were not allowed in the last one are inarguably true the other thing, sort of the scientific inquiry is still you know true using mm. other air quotes
0: mm, mm. yeah and and where does the role i guess of Oak culture traditions and magical practices and magic and resistance movements, where does this all kind of play in? Because we're seeing this happening at the same time as we're dealing with this massive climate crisis, right? We're seeing this kind of deconstruction of that totalizing worldview at the same time that we're dealing with the Anthropocene.
1: So good funnily enough, I was having just interviewed up the valley about this earlier this morning. Um, obviously, yes, in in the first sense, but in the second sense, and it's something I, I learned from Dr. Donna Haraway, is that she doesn't like the word Anthropocene because it's too big. And that's true. And, and it's a really good example of that kind of classic Einsteinian idea that you don't solve problems with the same thinking that caused them. And so I don't, I, I think a lot of discourse that is leaning towards nihilism and apocalypticism at the moment is not just scientifically invalid because that is actually self-evident but also even if it wasn't it's not helpful the the same thinking that caused it the thing i mentioned there the same thinking that caused it don't fall into the trap of using that is um, these problems seem insurmountable or totalizing therefore i need totalitarianism and and that's not That's actually never been the case. And and I think the difference is in what goes along with your moral decision to lean forward and participate in mutual flourishing needs to be a spiritual intelligence, which is the only thing that has ever worked. And I mean ever. And this isn't Gordon saying it. This is Lao Tzu. This is Buddha. This is Jesus. This is whoever you want. The only thing that has ever worked is that decentralized analog where you are mutual flourishing tyranny is tyranny and it's never worked in the totalizing sense of well now we must um and 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 you you hear that in the rhetoric at the moment and it's it's imperialism and genocide so you have you have white boomers in in funny clothing flying down to south africa to protest um africans getting reliable electricity so the the sort of death rattle of extinction rebellion was in johannesburg at an energy conference that's genocide um hundreds of thousands of babies in africa brown babies die every year because of lack of access to these services so for the western world to um have the 120 years it just had and then as uh, the developing world or the global south goes on that journey to try and interrupt it with these totalizing policies is not is not the way forward, that's not mutual flourishing. And it isn't to say that, you know, it's, this isn't a climate change denial thing, obviously, um, because climate change is real, <laughs> that's not an issue. It's <laughs> how about not being imperial, and maybe that will solve the legacies of empire, or maybe that will be participating in the, the ultimate ending of empire. And this is the bit that I'm I'm very very vocal about, which is this nihilistic, and they're going to be wrong because they've been wrong for decades on this. this. We only have 11 years left to save the world. Well, I think this time people's feet are going to be held to the fire because um, the world has it's been two years to save the world since the early 90s, and here we all are about to celebrate 2020. So I'm sorry to bring you the good news that you might actually live long enough to be forced to make the world better on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's really fascinating to be in a situation where I get pilloried more for... Um, saying, I bring you good news that perhaps the world isn't going to end. That seems to cause people more upset than, uh, than the opposite. And, and that, is, that is despair and nihilism, and it's traumatizing your own children. And even if it were true, it is the wrong way of thinking to bring any changes that you want there. So I kind of, I get caught in this infinite loop of what we do. And in that sense, it's magical. In that sense, it's magical and anthropological because it comes back to what Dame Marilyn Strathern said in the 1980s, which is it matters what thoughts we think with. So as we face these tremendous challenges, the, the, the way you guarantee that you will lose is to face them with a, a shrill call for totalitarianism mixed in with some sort of, apocalyptic nihilism that's literally traumatizing children when you are on the side that is traumatizing children you need to just take a breath and go hang on what if we're the bad guys because it makes it worse i mean we have just saw that with the british election Uh, Mm -hmm. the stuff these the thought patterns that lead to that kind of vocal interventionism not only is it based not in science but in some sort of fear of large weather events that they've convince themselves is science despite what the actual scientists who are behind the ipcc report or the world meteorological council say that the world is not going to end in 11 years but every time these things happen every time they disrupt a train the entire discourse shifts and it shifts away from where we want it to to go so it's sort of on every level the tactics don't match the goals and what i'm seeing is people doubling down on these tactics that make it worse rather than better and that is that's magic you know when you're dealing with with thoughts and how you embody them that there is no better definition of it so in that sense it intersects and in that sense i think i'm very excited about this occult revival because a similar thing can be said and is said by people other than just me because yes i don't i get pilloried by lots of people for that reason but the same thing when it comes to uh, gender and and trans rights and all the rest of it, these really, if you think with the thoughts you're thinking with, it is medicinal in the medium term, but quite painful in the short term because you actually have to unpick some very cherished ideas. And that I think is good. That is magic. That is that kind of transformative effect. So that's where I think it interfaces. And I think it's early days. It's early days. This has clearly been pushed in the unconscious sense. It's not as a controlled narrative sense, but this has clearly been pushed into the sort of front of our minds for the next few years is how we live in a way that is um, not just non-damaging, but mutually flourishing is the term I use. And how we get there, how we get there in every sense, horizontally across, um, you know, different rights groups and, and how we interact with the more than human world. It's all the one thing. And that makes it magic because it is how we impact and, uh, and embody the thoughts that we want to be real in the world, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Well said. I, you know, as you're articulating this, I was thinking of uh, your conversation with Becca and, of course, one of Becca's favorite lines, Becca Tarnas, uh, for listeners. From Lord of the Rings, you know, I'm going to paraphrase it. You probably know it better than I do, but, you know, it's, it's we, we don't choose the times that we were born into. We, all we can do is do something with the times that we were given. And there's yep. this kind of an immediacy. There's kind of an imminence to that. To that statement in terms of well, what do we do well we, we should live well and try to help others around us in a very kind of immediate way and,
1: um oh, absolutely and and the um the cosmology behind lord of the rings is a very good example of not taking the totalizing solution which escapes a lot of people right because in theory the best thing to do would have been to give the ring to you get, get to Rivendell, you give the ring to Gandalf or Elrond or whoever, and he gets all his elves and they and Boromir and Aragorn head to Minas Tirith. They get the rest of the men of the West and they full frontal assault. That is the Greta approach. That is not going to work. And actually what, because you end up trying to solve the tyranny with tyrannical thinking, but what is there all along and in little moments, and it's not just the fact that Frodo is a hobbit, there, there are moments in it that, Make you realize, because it isn't just Frodo; it's the four of them, that they individually participate as best they can. Sometimes, even when they're not consciously doing it, in in the saving of the world. So, the end of the first movie slash almost the end of the first book, where Merry and Pippin are taken by the orcs and Urukai back towards uh, Isengard, right? The reason they were taken is because the Orcs and Urukai thought that was Frodo. They were told to get two hobbits. They didn't know there was four. So they looked, there's two hobbits. And if they hadn't done that, if they'd stayed looking for Frodo and Sam specifically, they would have got the ring. And so Merry and Pippin's presence, which appeared to be bizarre until that point, it wasn't bizarre in the eyes of God. and It wasn't bizarre in the eyes of um, the universe, because in a a horrifying way that we we all just have to show up and do the best we can, if Merry and Pippin had not been there, the whole thing would have failed. So there are a whole bunch of moments like that which people don't get. Is deep token religion, right? Like that's his mm-hmm. attitude to God and and how we live, and it's it's how we should perhaps try it. That's genuine mysticism. That's there. That's what the saints will tell you. That's what again, yeah, Buddha. That's what all any mystic tradition will tell you, is to um, do the absolute best and and be that kind of um flourishing or light in in where you are because that you don't know how you're not the creator you don't know how the rest of that's going on and and it's it's worth sitting with i think yeah
0: for sure sean kelly i don't know if you've read his book coming home but uh he was a teacher of becca's at cis and i really appreciate his work he brought in the lord of the rings as this kind of one of many planetary mythos that that kind of help us understand our context and where we are right now and what we kind of need to be doing and he draws actually a lot from sam in the book saying you know sam at the end of the lord of the rings like what does he do his vision for for rebuilding the earth or or or, um, middle earth is to garden is to grow trees is to be you know, maybe something along the lines of what you're doing actually, which is you know, doing permaculture. There you go. Yeah. So including Lord of the Rings, but not necessarily just Lord of the Rings, do you see particular stories that resonate for you in our, in our moment right now in terms of this sort of planetary crisis?
1: Um, there are anything that can facilitate the, in a sort of Joseph Campbell sense, but anything that can facilitate, and it's different for each person, the player of the, our archetypal context is useful. So it's, it's a thing of a moment. Well, it's a thing of now. Apparently, I've not seen it. I think you just came back from the, the most recent or the final Star Wars film, the J.J. Abrams <laughs> one. It's apparently not very good. <laughs> the first three are, the first three are, and Joseph Campbell said, this is like um, George Lucas is my best teacher, uh, best student rather, because he literally got what I was trying to say. So whatever. Um, Star Wars can be one, but for me, it's I, I, I have had a since childhood fascination with uh, Ursula Le Guin's work, mostly Earthsea, but also always coming home and The Dispossessed being like the best anarchist book ever written. Um, Agreed. <laughs> and, and so... And I re-listened to it this summer. It's summer in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, as a, at the beginning of the year, some new or like audible versions of the Earthsea books came out. And they're just really well done. I'm, I'm a huge um, audiobook fan because I do a lot of like chopping or putting seeds in or I'm an hour from town. So there's a lot of time where I can't be reading. but I So I consume a lot of audio content. And, um, and these are just, it's a different narrator each time, but each person has, does a really good job of it. And I haven't actually had the books performed at me before. I've read them a bunch of times. And they are, there's something about Ursula. So here's the difference between for me and and the medicine they offer. Tolkien's medicine is the one medicine. He's like antibiotics. uh, And it's all in his world. So everything he did, the, the Hobbit and Silmarillion and all the languages and Lord of the Rings and all that. Middle Earth can save you and save the world. It, it is this magical thing. But Ursula, it's like she is, right? Because she does, over the course of her career, it was science fiction, it was Earthsea books. uh, It was a lot of advocacy for um anti-war, for women, for female writers, for all this stuff. She's this just deeply wise person. And the medicine is kind of like in her life and her books rather than, in a single thing with Tolkien. But um, Earthsea is a very different study of power and and your relationship to it. Middle earth gives you, and rightly so, Middle Earth gives you a moral perspective or a moral angle on the presence of power and, and who should and shouldn't seek it, right? Like the, the story is about that. It is about usurpation and seeking power. It is at every level, whether you're talking Silmarillion, Lord of the Rings, whatever. Uh, and and he does a very good job of that. Ursula. Does that in a different way? So, over the course of their first four books in particular, it's in this amazing kind of like horizontal Oregonian Taoist um, cosmology uh, of Earthsea, right? But because they were sort of there's a gap in between the first three and then Tehanu of about 10 years and in a bit more, and and she Aged her characters at the same time, so that main character at the end of the first four, sort of a quartet, and then it was two a decade or so later. Um, the 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 protagonist is is a crippled girl and an old widow, and and her hero through the books, Ged, who was the archmage, and and essentially all powerful, has lost all his power by this point. So, the story is not just about power and its application, but in aggregate, it's about what you do with it, what you do without it, and, and, and your moral relationship to it and the things you can do and must do to be in the world. And there's just never been anything like it. And and obviously, she was an excellent writer. So that helps. Um, the first few pages of Tehanu are better than Hemingway in their, uh, in their terse and stark description of a widow's fate. It's astonishing. And so, for me, at every level and angle of that book you have your responsibility to people less fortunate than you but also how to live in a magical world and and how to if you have power if you were someone who has it um what to think about power and and it's just such you'll never be worse off going through Earthsea in the same way you'll never be worse off going through middle earth and there's there's no diminishing returns in it it's something you can keep coming back to but those two those two are definitely it uh, and again but hey if you're more of a science fiction person or more of a space person and i usually am star wars um star wars does a good job of that too
0: yeah well, you, you have me very. I'm sold with with Ursi. I mm. need to I need to read it. I, I've read uh, the Dispossessed. I've read most of her science fiction.
1: Yeah, if you, like I'm I'm a, just gonna be crazy about this to everyone. If you're an audiobook person, oh, I mean, get the uh-huh. books clearly, but they're good. They're, like listen to them. If people are like on the fence who are like watching this, and you're not Audible members or whatever, these are these are really good ebooks to the point where ordinarily I just use them for driving and, and farm work. But when I was going through them the first time, I'm like, instead of going to bed to read, I'm, like, I'm going to bed with my headphones <laughs> and I'm being read to like a child. Like I was that, I, I wanted to get back into that experience of it, but it's, it needs to be done. I think it's, it's uh, now is the time for more people to, I guess, rediscover it. It was certainly before my time. The books came out before I was born, the fo- certainly. Um, and so there's sort of been this gap, the things that happened to Tolkien, who's always kind of perennially, perennially been there, don't happen as evenly to Ursula's work. And but I do think it's having a moment now and I think it should.
0: You bring up Taoism uh, quite a bit. And I know I know in The Dispossessed, in The Lathe of Heaven, for Le Guin, Taoism is, is very present in the protagonists. And then also in well, I'm especially thinking of the Lathe of Heaven and how the protagonist is is a sort of the an embodiment of the Tao in the sense of, you know, not really wanting the power that he has, in in a way, like what is the planetary hero's journey that, that is that is more Taoist than it is, you know, kind of going forth and conquering dragons and getting um, swords and other magical objects of power. Um, is there is there a different kind of version and expression of the hero's mythos? Um, sure in,
1: it's a good question yeah um, i think yes and and so there are two ways to do that so i would argue that um the taoist hero's journey is a perspective on the hero's journey because you can either be the hero with the sword doing all the dragon slaying or whatever or you can be observing that and going well this is the thing that the tao is doing now right so taoism gives you a perspective of um the, the same sort of thing if you get astrology right you can get from there which is that the way, like the flow is what it is. And and your your best life is in kind of knowing the things you can push and the things you can't and, and to be in the flow and to get out of its way. Now, that means you can either be observing the hero and realizing that that's a thing that the Tao is doing now, or you can be the hero knowing that you are doing what the Tao is doing and there's no difference between you. So I think it's that. I think you get... The difference is, and this is why I think she was so interested in it, because what a lot of people don't realize about her life, biographically speaking, is that her, um, her mother was a writer and, and translator of books as well, but her father was a very famous early anthropologist. And one of the ones who kind of did the first, although like, this is such a racially problematic thing, but at the time they thought they were doing their best, um, like translating like the last native Indians, um, worldview and all that kind of stuff in california this i can't we can't begin with how problematic all of those statements are right because it's 2020 soon so we don't think that way anymore but you do like her father was that person she grew up in the pacific northwest being told as she went to sleep um i hate the word folk but like folk stories from around the world and 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 first nations folk stories or um, creation stories about trees and and so on. So I think I have this impression because she actually also did her own version of the Tao Te Ching, which I have. So she kind of, and there's a writer like Le Guin, is a very good way into the Tao Te Ching because if you you can get academic translations or whatever, but if if you, you what you really want is a skilled writer who has a sense of the Tao, and that was her. And I think in Taoism, she she found a container cosmology for the things that were all the one thing, but interested her. So her feminism and her anarchism and her pacifism, were, which is all the one thing. She was looking at, well, how does one, how does a pacifist be in, in the world in, in a living universe? And Taoism is the closest that she found it. She wasn't wrong, that's for sure. Um, Taoism is the closest to where she might find that. Now, there's certainly like military practices and and all the rest of it but for her that's where it was it was a container idea of how to be a pacifist in a living universe and uh and it's that angle that you can take on on the hero's journey i think
0: Mm -hmm. yeah what came to mind actually this came up earlier today interestingly but um as you might know, some of my background is studying the work of Jean Gepser, who's mm-hmm. similar to Gilchrist and Gary Lockman's work in that sense, but he was sort of a contemporary of Jung and the Uranus uh, lectures and Irano circles. But he has a line that that uh, Gebserians bring up quite a bit. And it's it's knowing when to make happen and when to let happen. And I yes. find that that so well embodies a sort of Taoist hero or, or yep. non-hero or person. Which you know, if there are, there are times to pick up the sword, and there are other times to, as you're saying, kind of watch and observe and allow things to be. As you were bringing that up, I was just thinking, when did it's to, when
1: absolutely to... true? And there are some sort of over determined or um overused phrases in in Daoist adjacent stuff, um, like this, and Tzu, where there's this idea that you have already lost if battle is joined, uh, mm-hmm. and and that's a really good way of thinking about how to secure victory. So you don't win in in the sort of Sun Tzu view of conflict. You secure or make safe victory. And that you've basically lost if it ends up at a battle stage. It doesn't mean it's a pacifist or whatever text. It it is the same idea of knowing the things you can fight and the things that um, you win by not fighting. And and that has been my whole thing. I have a, I have a weekly newsletter about it. Uh, when I look at people falling into the uh, the increasing polarization, I'm like, going harder on this, going harder on this polarizing pull apart tension. If it hasn't worked already, you how are you convinced that it's now going to work? And and in the in the face of. And it's the impeachment's a really good example, right? Um, if he, he was already a two-term president, but this is—he's just—they just handed him the next election, uh, and you go, well, I, get, I absolutely get why you'd want to impeach him, but do you want to win? <laughs> and it's—it's it's a moment of like the more you do of this, he—he's already turned it around into more of that witch hunt. Perpetual lying stuff, where he's t- he's made this narrative about him in the wrong possible way that everyone else can get behind, and he goes, so maybe maybe that battle shouldn't have been joined, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe that battle shouldn't have been joined, and that's a really good example of how you the things you do because it's not a question of not um, fighting with lunatic tyrant, right? It's a question of securing victory and and if you make him stronger by doing these things to him don't do them and that that's tactics that's sort of like dallas tactics i think
0: as we're discussing and talking about this it's sort of turning into (laughs) what we can learn from particular stories about how to how to act right now like what are the myths what are the stories that was my question beyond le guin and beyond tolkien is any anyone else sort of inspiring you a particular book maybe a movie you had an excellent list
1: I did. Um, So a a movie that the movie that still best encapsulates my somewhere in between philosophical and political position is cloud Atlas. And even when it came out, I went and saw it, I did did a film degree. I went and saw it with a bunch of other film nerds in London and we came out of it. Everyone else is like, well, the mask looks silly and whatever. I don't think I was in the same film as you. I think everything about that was even the, the rough bits were almost supposed to be rough because the sort of silly masks that's kind of the point. If, if the story recurs through different generations, then all we are in that one moment is the mask. So there are ones like that that I think you can find enrichment in. Because, and in particular, what that one does, which I, th- I think is a very useful magical insight, uh, and you get this in, in contemporary shamanic traditions, right, which is everyone kind of vaguely knows there is a, a, an obligation um, to one's ancestors. But there's the other half of the story is obligation to one's descendants. Uh, and, and so it's how you be in the world that um, fulfills the, um, the best things about your ancestors and their best hopes for you and your family, but also how you do that in such a way that uplifts the descendants so that people, and family doesn't have to be bloodline, right, um, but descendants in, uh, in the future. And, and that is a kind of modern use of terminology for a way of being in time that again in anthropology we find in cultures like uh, different Australian original cultures and different Amazonian cultures and Cloud Atlas gets that. Cloud Atlas has the sort of co-implication up and down the timeline of wherever you are, womb to tomb we are bound to others, works through time and there's this sort of sense that the, um, the future conflict is is entangled in in our own conflict and the same for the past and if all of these weren't going on it wouldn't have happened and that's really difficult to do in a film like the film was messy because it was trying to do something big and important and that's one of the ones so i think if people are looking for i always find it enriching to to watch that film because it is a reminder that other people are having this fight or other people are engaged in this cosmic fight's almost too militant uh in this um cosmic drive towards flourishing and that has always happened So that's one of them i mean there are certainly plenty of other tv shows you don't have to necessarily watch worthy things um however fun that is like you don't necessarily have to watch worthy things there's a lot that can be um, found in horror movies there's a lot can be found in in comedies and so on and and just um experiencing joy final space um is just an animated tv show (laughs) well it's an animated space show which i watch because i still miss futurama and I'm like, it's fun. There's, there's nothing good about it. Futurama is definitely better. Futurama actually is a good example of one that accidentally has quite a good, quite a decent lesson in there. I think that is the best animated love story ever. Um, <laughs> if you watch it all, I think Fry and Leela is the best love story ever animated. And that uh, that's a surprise because it was a sort of not necessarily a Simpsons spin off, but it exists by virtue of the perennial popularity of The Simpsons. And it went on to do this kind of like accidentally really good thing yeah and there are other really fun recent shows i also like scary stuff that can be outlet for decolonial anger right so taboo which came out a few years ago with um, tom Hardy, is a really good post-imperial um, new world old world conflict show and the first series of the terror a similar idea um so you can get, there's some really good explorations of the kind of Imperial ghosts that are still with us. And, and those are two of them. But from a kind of um, uplifting perspective, um, Cloud Atlas or anything by Wes Anderson.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anything by Wes Anderson. Okay, yeah. that that's that's a good answer. I have to say, I can't argue with that. Um, have you watched The Expanse at all? I'm just wondering, because I've just watched yes. the- re- I
1: haven't finished it. Haven't finished it. Okay. Um, I wish, yeah, I mean- funny job I, I get super busy and so particularly with a weekly show there's a stack of books that I want to read for me and there's a stack of books I have to read for guests I know boohoo right but it does mean I never get quite the amount of time to to watch stuff that I want to I watched like the first series of it and I enjoyed it I just haven't been back to it yet
0: mm, mm. okay just that's just and we can talk about it when you, when you get up to the next season or the we latest do. season, but it's, it's very much kind of exploring colonization and expansion of, of the human species into the interstellar realm. And so these questions f- of colonialism come up. And, sure.
1: Yeah. Science fiction is the best medium to explore the present day. It's, mm. the, it's better than, and it's a side effect of, of an attempt to try to perfect it in that modernist technological sense but it is, it is better than anything else. It is better than, and I love documentary. It's better than uh, the the most verite documentary you could get. Can't hold a candle to highlighting contemporary issues in the way science fiction can. And if you think of any science fiction classic, it is always about, and in particular, the kind of class struggles makes it too Marxist, but it's not necessarily wrong. Uh, In particular, the economic struggles of the day in which, um, the book or film or whatever emerged.
0: Um, first of all, I don't know if you've read any of William Gibson's work recently. Like no, I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, beyond the yeah, classic
1: 500 years ago, sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I like what he does because everyone's always saying he's the prophet of the internet, etc. Cyberpunk, uh, uh, cyberspace was the term that he, I think he coined or helped to coin or popularize the Neuromancer, but his work he's always saying this it's, it's an exploration of the present he he, he yep. leans into the present and he just kind of focuses on it until it starts to get a little weird until weird things kind of you know like um the william s burroughs line you know if you cut into the present the future leaks out it's that hmm. sort of sense that you know science fiction very often kind of gives us not a prophetic sense but it a kind of um what what is latent in the present in our cultural phenomenology? What are we dealing with? What are we going to have to unpack 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now? And very often folks like Philip K. Dick or William Gibson kind of get hurled at as, as
1: prophets, where really I think they were just
0: very sensitive to the
1: present. They, they were, and also I think Octavia Butler had them beat. She's a, she's a really good example of like, the stuff that leaks out now the the, the things yeah. that um, she explored in, in her stuff is, is that happened it's funny coming back to lord of the rings um it was that in reverse i i don't i know i get tro- in trouble for saying this too i don't super like michael moorcock i know as a person i'm sure he's a lovely person i've never really resonated with his stuff uh however i've shared a couple of years ago he gave a talk at shakespeare and co in paris about being alive in london when lord of the rings came out and people didn't know what to do with it they thought it was science fiction describing some sort of post-nuclear wasteland europe it was so alien to them that they're like is this is this like in the future but after the bomb and tolkien was like no 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 and i think there is a similar tendency and the reason Um, gibson gets held up and it's not like it's wrong at all but the reason he gets held up as being a prophet is because you can kind of do a one-to-one between the technological stuff we have available and um what he wrote about in the books but uh if you look at what i think this is unfair and i like gibson stuff this isn't shade on him in any way but that's kind of easy it's sort of staying on the surface level to say well that's what this is about arguably something like cloud atlas which was a novel four years before it was a movie um is doing the same thing because there are these eruptions of solidarity horizontally hong kong south america wherever you want right now and it's all the one thing it's all the one revolution and so whilst it didn't accurately predict cell phones um i think science fiction as you say that's the um the Burroughs line is really, really good. The future leaks out if, if you cut into the present. I think Lord of the Rings did that too in a way that is almost in reverse. But again, it's because we can't, we can't situate it. We're impacted by it and, and Gibson stuff or Butler stuff or Tolkien stuff. You can't, I, it's difficult to hold it in your head for the first time and it's one of the reasons i think it's so transformative
0: yeah yeah i mean mean, to bring it back to tolkien i i feel like we always have to in some way or we we always end up that way um yeah just just from taking becca's class and working on her with with her book um there's a sense that yeah tolkien in, in in many ways was was articulating a planetary mythos uh that is just as relevant today as it was you know the time that he was writing it. And perhaps it is even more relevant for the next generation that's going to have to be dealing with some of these more acute problems of uh, climate change. So so there's a sense that, yeah, it's not just science fiction. It's just the act of, of, of creating as being a creator or a sub-creator, I suppose, you know, sure. in the, the moment that we, we we are inhabiting in culture, in our moment in history. And it's just that kind of artistic expression sort of in the in the way McLuhan talks about because McLuhan kind of gives us that that way of looking at art in general as a sort of expression of I don't know maybe in his language it would be the evolution of cultural mediums where, where we're moving sure. from a particular notice, world to another world
1: uh, yeah I, I want to jump in there notice that that is exactly what I was trying to say about the non-tyrannical way of of being in the world
0: hmm. I think
1: a huge part of it is getting out of the your own way when it comes to expressing creativity. And that can be, and that is not just because I can't paint for shit, let me tell you. That's not specifically in an artistic expression thing. That's everything. That's how, like, to live artistically is to delight in making your evening meal, right? And I think that is, all of these people we've just landed on is a really good example of how you improve the world without appealing to tyranny. And, and it's, it just brings it back into alignment with the mystic traditions of the planet. And it just seems like that's the thing we need to help each other discover initially and then continually remind ourselves on as we navigate these increasingly challenging times. Because if you, if you forget it for a second, all of a sudden you're calling for tyranny. And that, that literally ends in tyranny, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in some way, I'm thinking of of a kind of poetic vision of the earliest of us in terms of, I I don't know if the the current science is, is reflective of this, but they always say, you know, there was one point, there was a bottleneck in human evolution, and there was only like a few thousand of us. And from what we know about our ancient ancestors, they were probably animistic, they were magical, they were doing this, they were living and creating and doing magic and surviving in a world, participating with it. And, and in some sense, I don't know if anything has fundamentally changed from that bottleneck to this potential bottleneck in the sense of, what's the answer as well as to what you're saying? Like, you know, yeah. relish the- I, it's, it's a
1: really, really, really interesting comparison. I like it. Because this time the, the squeeze is metaphysical mm. rather than physical. I like it. I Get through this, yeah, this bottleneck. That's cool. It's from yeah, last time I checked, there were two bottlenecks, and the one you're referring to was about a hundred and something years, one hundred fifty thousand to one hundred twenty thousand years ago. Leaving Africa, we got down to a few thousand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that appears to be it, but I like that. I like, that's an interesting, I will, I will take that and, <laughs> uh, and sit with it.
0: Did our hundred thousand year old ancestors go and create some kind of totalitarian survival <laughs> philosophy. All right. All the humans got to get on board to make it through this, this bottleneck moment. No, no, we, we were doing nope. super, much more nope. along the lines of what we're, we're talking about here. So exactly. yeah, I don't know. I, I, I enjoy these kinds of conversations because I don't think you can really get to these necessarily alone but it's sort of like in the the back and forth that uh, in the dialogue you know maybe we can end here with with the last question which would be do you have any kind of orienting practices um, attitudes to kind of have entering this new year
1: yeah absolutely so one of the great um it, it's funny if you look at I, I i watch a bunch of different cycle models um including astrology and it, it's not just necessarily 2020 but if you look over the next few years um they are they're strange and turbulent and the the upside of that is that it makes them it makes the next few years quite predictable that's what i mean about like transit to term president like the good news there is that you can stop Freaking out every news cycle, and 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 you kind of have an understanding of what the road's going to be for a while. That's really valuable. That's actually what um, forecasting is for, right? It doesn't necessarily. We think forecasting is looking for our preferred future, and we can certainly have a preference. But also, the future's going to do Taoism, right? The future's going to do what it's going to do, and so I. I'm a big believer in, I believe optimism is a spell. So even, or especially when being optimistic is the most difficult is exactly when you need to do it because there is 150 years of psychological evidence and millennia of spiritual evidence behind this idea that somehow in some weird way, your thoughts are causative. So there is, turbulence ahead. um, That's quite clear. You don't need to be an astrologer. Not that I am. You don't need to be an astrologer to see that uh, there's some bounce, right? Fasten seatbelts in a way. Uh, That is a call for optimism. And and that is a call to never give in to despair, because it makes it worse. Uh, It actually makes it worse. In the same way, you can make a case for prayer to atheists, which is even in the absence of any belief, we have decades of documentation that praying for someone's healing after surgery or, or serious illness makes them heal faster. Same thing going to church or temple, even if you're an atheist, people who go to church or temple live longer. So you can be, which is silly if you ask me, but you can be atheist as the day is long and I can make a case to you for prayer and going to temple. In the same way, looking at 2020 to 2024, 25 in particular, we can together look at the turbulence and take a deep breath, and I can make a spiritual or just a basic scientific exhortation to knock you into despair and and to be optimistic and, and go for it, because that is what we have.
0: Yeah, well, thank you, Gordon. And thanks for being thank on you.
1: me. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I'll see you in the new year.